So we're wrapping up this, uh, this series tonight. It's really something we could go into detail for a long time. It's a really good study, and there's, there's reasons why. Um, you know, it's been, we're going on the third, or we're in the second week now since all of these attacks have happened and the response from Israel, and you just see the bias of the world. You see where people are, it just seems to be a natural thing to be against Israel. There's a school teacher in New York who changed his profile picture on social media to reflect a silhouette of a paraglider. Um, and then on the top left, he had a pro-Palestinian flag, and he said, I am with Palestine. And when you do research on the significance of the silhouette of a paraglider, uh, that's how the Hamas terrorists came in and then proceeded to... Folks, I'm not talking about they just shot people. Uh, you, you've seen the reports, uh, how they brutally desecrated bodies after they had killed them. And you have a school teacher in New York who is just, you know saying, essentially, I'm with that. I, I support that. And you think to yourself, what is going on? How do people come to these conclusions? Well, that's really what we're going to study tonight. Everything that we looked at a couple of, or, uh, last week, we, we talked about all of the things leading up to about 135 AD when the Jews finally were taken out of that place. And it was, as it was prophesied, they were scattered all around. That went on for a long time, long time, 400, um, well, significantly longer than that. But around 1916 is when things started to change. There were people who were empathetic to the Zionist movement. Now, I want to talk about that for just a moment because the phrase Zionist or Zionism has been drastically redefined in the last 20 years. Significant, or originally, what it means to be a Zionist is basically this. Whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile person, you are for Israel to be back in their land. Okay, not just in a land, like not like in you know the state of Massachusetts or something. That's that's not the land that God had promised them. A Zionist is somebody who is looking to the establishment of the borders that God gave as a promise to Abraham. Today, it's been used in a very similar manner, at, to, at like what when President Trump was in office, that he was so pro-America and he was xenophobic to all these other countries and stuff. You know, this whole like American first, this ultra-patriotism painted in a negative light. That's how people paint Zionists today. You're going to hear this phrase as you watch the news tonight, especially if you're watching particular news programs. Everybody's got their bend uh, or their bias. In particular, you're going to hear this occupied land, occupied land. Well, this comes about because of the treaties that we're going to look at here on, on the screen. So we'll go ahead and take a look at that now. But I forgot to mention this. The maps that we are watching, uh, that we're going to be seeing tonight, were done by Dr. Galen Peterson of the American Remnant Mission. I have been on that website since I found this original article, and I went to their statement of faith, and they're clear on the gospel. I mean, they make, they make distinction as to they're not Calvinist. And they believe that salvation is only by the one-time act of faith in Jesus Christ, which is refreshing, really refreshing. And then when you, you get a chance to actually read the article, you see how thorough it is, but also simple and clear. That's the kind of research that I like. He doesn't go into a lot of the things that happened 
after the armistice agreements in 1949, there was the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, that uh, period of time where Israel enlarged its borders and part of the Golan Heights, part of the West Bank and all that. There's a heavy discussion as to Israel's not supposed to be there. But you'll see as we look at what was originally thought of to be given to Israel in the uh, Sykes-Pickett Agreement of 1916, what the plan was and what it ended up being, okay? So I want to read this poem to you very quickly before we uh, look at this map. This is from a, um, a Polish Jew. His name is Naftali Imber. He wrote a poem in 1877 which said this, As long as within the heart a Jewish soul still learns, and, and onward toward the east, and I still watches toward Zion, our hopes has not been lost, the 2,000-year-old hope, to be a free nation in our own homeland, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. 71 years later, that became the national anthem of Israel. Does anybody know the name of that national anthem? Warren? The Hak? The uh, Hat Tikva, yes, very good. I'm sure we just murdered that, but uh, it's beautiful. The description of the hope for the Jewish people not just to be in any land, not some quartered place, but in that land that was promised to them. So a lot of things happen. World War I's going on, and uh, the Ottoman Empire sided with Germany, and that, that seemed to be a major mistake. And so the Ottoman Empire, as you see, well, sorry, this is the original promised land according to God's decree. This was one of the maps that we looked at last week. You can see how far-reaching it is over around the Dead Sea here down to the this, uh, this separates Egypt over here. There was a point in time after the Six-Day War when Egypt had come in and attacked that Israel took possession of all this too. But then there was an agreement afterwards where they went back to this original borderline. But this is what God had promised. And you know today it's about this, you know. And there's problems here, there's problems up here, and there's a major problem right here, right now. But you can, you can see where, how, how all these things changed. Well, under the kingdom of uh, Israel, under David and Solomon, you can see here this is about as much as was ever conquered by uh, Israel. You can see here the Phoenician border was still a problem that ultimately fell into Jewish possession, but Gaza has been an issue for a long, long time. Joshua went in, tried to conquest it, was not able to do so, so it's been a problem ever since. So the Sykes-Pickett Agreement here in 1916, this is what was brought about as a result of the closing of World War one, the First World War. The 1916 agreement was the idea that uh, France and Britain were going to control this area here that made up the Ottoman Empire. So they were going to split it up, and they were going to designate states within this area. Okay, That takes a lot of time. You would think, okay, um, you can see right here, I'll, I'll point it out. This is just for your reference we zoomed out from this map just a moment ago, this little chunk of land here. Where we've zoomed out now to the entire region that was the Ottoman Empire, and that chart we just looked at is now right here. Okay, so you can see there's a lot of land that was up for grabs. Do you know why this is a very important land historically? If you look at it, you can, you can know why. There's a lot of trade route right here. There's a lot of ports, a lot of opportunity for commerce. The closer you are to water, especially when you have boats and vessels and things, 
the more profitable you are as a city or as a country that controls that border. Okay, so France and Britain in this Sykes-Pickett agreement, they have a massive responsibility here. And everybody's kind of paying attention. And there was a guy, his name was uh, Arthur Balfour. He was the British Foreign Secretary. He was a strong advocate for the Jewish people. He knew specifically about Zionism and the desire for the Jews to be back in this land right here that was promised to them. And so he was, he, he was ready to do that. He was ready to implement it. And this was the discussion about four years after that Sykes-Pickett agreement. This is what the proposed plan was. So this is, this is very detailed, and it, it takes some time here. Um, Arthur Balfour, he, he issued a letter to the uh, British Jewish community, and it, this is what it said. His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Now stop for a second here. We're going to be focusing on this in a moment, but I want you to understand the root of this word here. This is not a, I don't want to say it's not a Bible word, because it is, but it's never been a designation for this area as far as God is concerned. This is a Roman uh, word for the old Hebrew word, which we understand today as Philistine or Philistine. This is a designation of the tribes that were once in this place that after the promise that was given to Abraham was issued by God, he went through ultimately through his seed and they took that land from the people. Now the Bible describes these individuals that dwelt in this land as heathens, in some places barbarians, a lot of people want to get very political with that and say, see, this is God showing his preference over, you know, a preference for one people over another. You've got to understand the significance of Romans chapter 9. God chooses, as far as election is concerned, the role of people. He does not choose who is saved and who is not saved against their will, but in his sovereignty, the pottery cannot look at the potter and say, I will be this. The potter is the one that molds those regions. Hold on to that thought, because when we go later into Genesis, you're going to see some significant things that were said both to Ishmael and to Isaac. And we'll get to that in a moment. But you, this word is everywhere. Everywhere. There's a clip circulating on the internet. I don't remember the guy's name, but he's a very wealthy businessman. And he taught Hamas... Um, now, now, you have to understand, not every Palestinian is empathetic to Hamas. We can't draw that conclusion. We do know, though, from reports that are coming out, that Hamas, using underground tunnels and stuff, are basically holding citizens hostage while underneath their houses they have weapon caches. And while Israel is saying to evacuate, we are going to neutralize this northern section, the television news network through Al-Aqsa, they're saying that's a false flag. Israel has seen dropping hundreds, I mean, probably tens of thousands of little letters that say, evacuate to this point. And you see uh, Hamas sympathetics gathering those things up and burning them. They actually cut that TV station because of the fake news that was coming out of it. It's amazing to see the depth of depravity to a people that want to see the entire... I, I, this, this was an article that I... I'm, I'm going to quote from an article here that I had read a little while ago. This ideology of the Islamic Caliphate does not stop with Israel. 
Okay? Let's just say Hamas was successful and they took over that entire region. They would align with those who are sympathetic in Syria. They would move forward into Britain, into England. They, they want the, we are looking for Jesus to come back and he will establish his rule and reign. In the Islamic idea, they set it up. They're the ones that conquer throughout the world so that Allah can come back and you know his prophet Muhammad and all these different things. So you see that it's not just a Palestinian-Israeli problem. This is a fundamental issue of faith. But what you're looking at on the screen here, you see that phrase, that, that word Palestine, that represents all of this region here. And the green ones were going to be under, as you can see on the, on the chart before, the green ones are going to be uh, Britain's responsibility and the orange ones are going to be France's responsibility. So France is going to take care of this establishment of what would be Syria, Lebanon, Iraq over here, and Palestine. And, and in parentheses, this was because of Arthur Balfour, sympathetic to the Jewish state. Look at the, look at the intended amount of land that was going to be litigated for the Jewish people. Okay? That's 1920. This is in Italy, San Remo. Time goes on. Why is time going on? Because the Arab states, the Arab communities, were fighting this vehemently. They were against this idea of the Jews going back into that land. So there was now, it fell apart. 1920, there, were these, there was this grand idea for this very well thought out map. It went down further, and we see now we're going to have the introduction of an Arab state. You hear this, you hear this vocabulary today on the news. The Arab state of the West Bank, the Arab state of the Golan Heights up there in Syria. All these different things, the Arab state of the Gaza Strip. This is how they got to that conclusion. So in 1922, there was a Palestinian mandate where it said, okay, the Jewish people are going to get this portion of land. I want you to notice here how this is one piece, okay? There's nothing infringing on the inside. Uh, now, if you look at the original one from 1920, the, the San Remo, lot has changed, but now there's a line that goes right down the middle here, and that is now called Transjordan. I think it's so interesting that that was the name that they came up with, but this was this idea of the Arabs will dwell here, the Jews will dwell here. Why do you think the Arabs had a major problem with this? Not only because it was an infringement on their religious right, but look who gets the coast. Look who gets all the access, even down here. So that's another you know, problem for business. So this got voted on and approved. Well, hang on. Now there's even more involvement. You see now there is a purple block and an orange block has been added for the second Arab state. Look at how much time has passed here. You have 1922. Now we're at 1947. You know in 1948, Israel became a nation. But this was the, this was the final agreed upon by the, by the Jewish community. They said, okay, we'll take this. Look at how drastically it changed. This was the original one here in 1920. Cut in half. Now, look at all the green that's left. You've got a part of the coast here, that old Phoenician coast. Gaza, still under possession of this second Arab state. All of this is Jordan. West Bank, right here. You, you hear that phrase? Jerusalem's bloop, right there. 
This is the most holy, that's the holiest site for Israel. No, we're giving that to the second Arab state. And then you have the Upper East up here. So this is what they, they, they finally agreed upon. And you know, God bless the Jewish people who realized if we have something, that's better than, than nothing. Then you had the armistice agreements of 1949. There was conflict immediately as Israel came into that land in 1948. There was major conflict. They were attacked. And now you have this little tiny second area right here, which is the second Arab state. But you have the West Bank here was under Jordan's possession for a long time. So this was the original. The yellow here signifies the original. This is what I'm going to give you, Abraham, and to your seed. This is what they ended up with. So you see Jordan was going to be out here, and you've got the West Bank possession here, this small strip, and then all this down here in the south. Last map I'm going to show you, this one's not, um, Dr. Galen didn't have a map for the current state, so I want you to see as it is today, the map that we're looking at today. You've got the Sinai Desert here, this is Egypt, you've got the Gulf of Eliot down here. You've got the uh, Sea of Galilee right here, the Dead Sea right here, Amman, Jordan, all these different uh, things. I think that is uh, Petra down there, one of the wonders of the world. Um, that's an area as well. And Israel has friendly relations with Jordan. Now, the people in Jordan, as you can see on the news today, they align with the terrorist group Hamas, with the pro-Palestinian agenda, uh, but at least the government of Jordan is, is pretty much an ally with Israel at this point. You hear a lot of stuff about the northern issues today, all of the, nor the, the rockets that are being launched into the north and stuff like that from Lebanon and Syria, where you can, see, you can see how that is possible. When we go to um, Israel, usually you're, you're right here in, in this area. You do a lot of stuff up here on day one. So this is affecting a lot in Israel, not just the lives of Israelis, but you know, from people all over the world that were down here when this attack happened, um, you know, brutally murdered and all sorts of stuff like that. But these are the land borders today. And you can see Jerusalem's right there in the center. And I'm going to flip back to this map before, one more before that. I want you to pay attention, hold on to this kidney bean shape right here. You have that in your mind? Keep going, keep going, and now you can see they're in possession of that today. That is considered, by pro-Palestinian advocates, that is considered as occupied land. Okay, that would be like if Australia came in and took by military force the entire state of Florida. They're not in agreement to do that with the United States, but there's enough threat from Australia to do significant harm to the United States that they would say, Okay, we are, we are taking this land. Okay, that's an aggressive occupation. That's how pro-Palestinian individuals view what's happening right now in Israel. So you can see why there's a lot of tension. In Jerusalem, there's the Muslim quarter. All, all, all that kind of stuff is significant. But you can see how we got here today. And you can see how drastically it has changed from God's original plan. Now, we're going to get into a study here in, in the book of Psalms, chapter 105. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Psalms 105. It'll be up here on the screen because I want to highlight some words here for you. But in the book of Psalms, chapter 105, starting in verse 7, there's some language here that I think is important to note 
about the covenant that was established with Abraham by God. Okay? It's an unconditional covenant. All Abraham had to do was respond in belief. Okay? God upholds the rest of it. Did Abraham respond in belief? Yes. So that executes the covenant. And the covenant can be for, you know, a limited amount of time. It can be for a long amount of time. For example, when people get married, um, they're making a covenant between the two of them and God with the minister as the officiant. And then the ceremony, those who are in person, they are witness to this covenant. That covenant, how long does it last? Till death do us part. So at the death of one of those individuals, the covenant has been fulfilled. It's timed. Okay, well, the covenant that God gave to Israel, excuse me, that God gave to Abraham about this land, look at what it says. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac, and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law, and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, Unto thee will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance. That entire chapter, I can't believe how much time we don't have, but that entire chapter, that entire chapter of Psalms 105, it goes through very general yet specific detail about how this promise was communicated down the line. There are some words that I want to draw out for your um, education here. Verse 8. He hath remembered his covenant forever. The Hebrew word that is used here is olam, and it means into eternity. There are some that say, well, this probably meant for a lifetime. It can't. And you might say, why? Because you're biased? No. Look at the last part of the verse. He speaks now in a uh, it's, it's a hyperbolic phrase. Look what it says. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Now, the goal here is not to count a thousand generations and then say, okay, that's when everlasting ends. No, no. This is to say on and on and on into eternity, this covenant God will remember forever. You're looking at the express language here. That's an important thing to note. Verse 10 says... Same thing, same idea and word that is communicated in forever, just in a different iteration. It says, and confirm the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an, what kind of covenant? Everlasting covenant. Different than the covenant illustration we looked at with marriage. It says, till death do us part. This is forever and ever and ever. While this present earth is here, God is not finished with his people. Now, I want to just make this as a side note due to time. There's a ragingly popular um, theology out there right now called replacement theology that teaches that God has replaced Israel, physical Israel, with the spiritual church. That would nullify this passage. There's nothing in there. In, in your New Testament Bible, there is nothing in there to signify that God is done with his people. As a matter of fact, look in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1.
Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul, he's in this parenthetical expression, which just means it's a separate address to the Jews, starting in chapter 9, going through chapter 11. And he says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be what? Saved. What does it mean for Israel to experience salvation? We know from the context it's not speaking of physical deliverance, although they will be uh, provided for physically, they will be delivered at the second coming. How can Israel experience a spiritual salvation? They accept their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Why would Paul have a desire and prayer for a people in which God is done with? Why would he speak about Israel here in this way if it's just the church? They are two separate things, folks. Salvation the same for both, but they are two separate things. This is a very important uh, note when you're studying your Bible. You separate the promises for Israel and the promises for the church. People like Joel Osteen, Beth, I can't think of her name right now, but they use the, you know, this prosperity gospel idea. They take promises to Israel, they wipe out that they're to Israel, and they replace it with the church. Oh, you want to have financial success? Just do X, Y, and Z, and you'll get it. That's how you get bad Bible doctrine. <laughs> That's how that comes about. These three words here are significant. What is even more significant, I think, and what I want you to pay attention to, is verse 9 of Psalms 105. Meet me in Genesis 17. We're going to have to go through this quickly. But meet me in Genesis 17. Oh, I, I put a bookmark there. <laughs> Genesis 17, uh, we'll, we'll pick up there in verse 15 in a moment. Look on the screen, if you would, please. There's a phrase that I've now bolded in purple that says, which covenant he made with Abraham, and the phrase to focus on is, and his oath to who? Isaac. Now, Isaac is the seed, the product of consummation between Abraham and who? Sarah, which was the original intent. Abraham, speaking plainly, messed it up. Out of unbelief, he acted by going and sleeping with his handmaid, Hagar, and thereby bringing about Ishmael, which was of no fault to Ishmael. No fault to him. It's a product of Abraham's unbelief. But Ishmael was born first. And as a matter of fact, when the reaffirming of the covenant is made to Abraham and Sarah, Abraham pleads for the life of his son, Ishmael. But God says, I'm going to give you a seed of Sarah, and it will be the one that gets the everlasting covenant. And he's very specific about what the difference is. So look in Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 15. And God said unto Abraham, As for, thy, as for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, give thee a son also of her. Remember, she was barren at this point, no children. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. That's, that's kind of generic, but it's going to get specified later. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, 
and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old, and, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear, shall she conceive at this age? And Abraham said unto God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. He, he, this is the goodness of God, by the way, that even though man messes up, God still gets what he says he's going to promise. The sovereignty of God here. He, Abraham asked for intervention for his firstborn. And God said, Sarah, thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Notice how Paul in Galatians chapter 3 nails it when he said it's not seeds, plural, it's seed one. What does this tell you about the line of Isaac? That's where Jesus came from. That's where the lineage came from. Did not come from Ishmael's line. But Ishmael was first. So how do we deal with that? Well, before we look at verse 20 in chapter 17, go to chapter 16 and look at verse 11. Some back story here. Genesis 16, 11. Hagar and Sarah, they're feuding. Gets to the point where Hagar flees after she is uh, removed by Sarah from the house, the angel of the Lord visits her, okay? And there's a promise that is given about Ishmael. Look in verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, you are pregnant, and shall bear, bring forth a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, which, do you know what that name means? God shall hear this is, this is significant, folks. It'll bring you to tears when you recognize it. Even though he is the product of unbelief and Hagar is the product of Abraham's unbelief, essentially saying, God, I do not believe that what you, will, you said you do will come to pass. He still intercedes for her. God still hears her plea. Now that doesn't mean now she's, you know, some chosen nation for the Messiah to come through. No, that... That will not change because God had a plan for Isaac. But the significance here is that the request to be a free people, Ishmael will get. All of his lineage were Bedouins. What, that, what I mean by that is they were nomads. They wandered around. I don't want to say aimlessly, but they pretty much did what they wanted to do. And that was the problem she had in Abraham's house. She couldn't do what she wanted to do. Well, her prayer was answered, but also there were some very significant things said about the state and character of this man, Ishmael. And look what it says, shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Verse 12. And he will be as a wild man. His hand will be against every man. He will war, he will strive with every man and every man's hand against him. Now, is that God causing Ishmael to be a difficult person against his will? No, I think that's God looking down at the character of this man and saying that's how he's going to be. That's how he's going to come about. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And later, I think it's in Genesis 25, when Ishmael dies, he dies in the presence of all of his brethren. So there's the two promises. There's a promise to Ishmael. Now look in verse 20 of chapter 17. I know we're over time, but just hang with me. And as for Ishmael, this is uh, Genesis 17, verse 20. And as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Who's he hearing now? Who did he hear first? 
Hagar. Now he hears Abraham, verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Behold, I have blessed him, will make him fruitful, will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget. Folks, this is the antithesis of Israel. Twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes that came from Ishmael's line. So you could, now you can see, look up here for a moment. I know we're glued to our Bibles and that's good. But you can see now why the Palestinian movement claims rights through Abraham. How do they do it? They go through Ishmael's line. Matter of fact, they say in, in the Muslim faith, they all are descendants back to that. Now, whether that's true or not is up for debate, and that's a whole other discussion that we would need a full service time for. But they grab onto that promise, but God got specific in verse 21. But oh, look at the end of verse 20. And I will make him a great nation. But 21 says, but my covenant will I establish with who? Isaac, and even more specific, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. That's it. That's God's promise. He says the line is going to go through Isaac. That's where the seed is going to come about. And who is the seed? It's Jesus. And all of those who are found in him, these promises apply. So, the, the takeaway from this is the promised land is not a matter of litigation as you saw on the maps here. This is not how God intended the promised land to go. Okay, you got this, and then you got this, and then we, we can agree to this, and then we can agree to this. God does not go, yep, that's what I intended. I sign off on that, even though his people agree to it. God is going to provide all of that. And it's not going to be to those here unless, unless they put faith in Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see the significance of all this here? That's why I say, and so far, of the people that I've heard spoke about this and made videos, no one's talking about that point. You want rights into the land? Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you'll get it when you have a new glorified body, when there is no sin nature. I've heard Dr. Arnold's video talking about this. I've heard Pastor Jim Scudder. Excellent work. They lay it out for you as it is. People are upset with Yankee because of how strongly he speaks about the Muslim intent for violence. I think the things that he said, are, are you know, they pale in comparison to what was actually done, the, what, what, what we saw on October 7th. Horrible, graphic, gruesome stuff. But I, I hope this has been beneficial for you, that you can look at this and get a better understanding. And I encourage you, go in your Bible, if you have eSort as a, as a study tool, go in there and search Hagar. I'm sorry, not Hagar. Go in there and search Gaza and see how many times it's used in Scripture. And it's always a thorn in the foot of Israel. And you, you see some things in Isaiah about barbaric behavior coming out of Gaza, other places, that you can see these are real you know, cities today. And it's, if you're interested in it, what you're going to notice is the Bible's not an old-time book. Yes, it has years behind it, but it's accurate. We are reading you know, 
tomorrow's headlines today. And it's amazing when you, when you piece it all together and you go, man, God has a plan here. He is in total control. There is nothing that catches him by surprise. And then you begin to wonder, what are we moving towards? How significant is this conflict going to get? And are we getting close to the Lord's return? Well, you know, with the passing of each day and the beginning of the next one, the answer is yes, we are getting closer. But you also see the suffering of, you know, present time individuals. I saw a photo of a family of five, mom, dad, three kids, their picture before the day that they were murdered, and then the picture underneath is their caskets. That's how quick. that's, That's real life for people. I've also heard great illustrations of people saying, you know, we're raking our leaves, we're going to pumpkin patches, we're planning for fall festivals, we're watching football, we're having family get-togethers, we're spending time as the season changes, and just across the globe, they're at war. The difference, the polarity between the present realities for individuals. That's why it's so important what is said in Colossians 3.1. If you then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of the Father. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. All these things that we have here, temporary, folks, we have a home in heaven. You keep that the focus, it'll keep you fresh and sharp to share Christ with people. I got a student in my Bible class who has a friend who is, he is sympathetic to Hamas. They work together. But it's a great conversation starter. He had a conversation with him last week. I told him, I'm like, hey, check out this source that I have. It can be great information for conversation. The guy hasn't changed his mind yet. But what's the point here for, for, for my student? What's the point? Give him the gospel. Get him to understand what Jesus Christ has done. And then the political stuff, you know, that's going to be the result of man. But as far as salvation, the new birth, how does that come about? You put your trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to illustrate that for you now. If this hand represents you and me, I'll let this wooden block that says sin represent exactly what it says. This is sin. Put it on top of my hand because we've all sinned, myself included. We've all fallen short of God's glory. God, he loves us very much. He hates our sin because it separates us from him. We have to be perfect, sinless to get to heaven. That doesn't mean we try our very best. That means we could not have done this at any point at all. And we all know we're sinners. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation forever in a place called hell. There's no amount of good deeds that can pay for this sin. Going to church, reading your Bible, being a good person, all those things are good, but they're not an accepted form of payment for sin. Somebody has to die for this, and somebody has to die for it, and then they end up paying for it. This hand represents Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and for the sake of illustration, I let this hand represent Him. God sent his son into the world, fully God and fully man, to pay for our sin. And what's significant about Jesus is he didn't have any of this. He did not have any sin. He was tempted in all points as man was, but he was found without sin. So when he went to the cross, he took that sin, laid it upon himself. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again three days later to prove that he was who he claimed to be, the son of God. And that the payment that he made for sin was accepted. What did he say before he died on the cross? It is finished. That payment for sin was finished. He came back from the dead three days later and he says, whosoever believeth in him would have everlasting life. 
you can only have everlasting life and be in heaven. So how can you get to heaven if you have all this sin that's separating you between God? You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ, that he died in your place. And that's what John 3.16 illustrates. For God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. Because I'm a good person, because I do good works, because I try. No, no, because I've put my faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He paid my price. The moment you do that, God gives you his righteousness. He gives you a home in heaven. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have a new birth. All those things are true. He holds on to you. You can't slip out of his grip. He's got a grip on you. And you're grafted into these wonderful things that we've studied tonight. I pray if you've not put your trust in Jesus Christ before tonight, I pray that you would do so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If you were trusting maybe in yourself, your good works, your church affiliation to get you to heaven, I would like for you to change your mind tonight. To put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ that what he did on the cross paid for all of your sins, that he was buried and rose again. If that makes sense to you and you say, Pastor, tonight I trusted Jesus Christ as my only hope of going to heaven. I believe he died on the cross, rose again for my sins. Would you pray for me? I certainly would pray for you. Would you just lift your hand up and say, I trusted in Jesus Christ tonight. Raising your hand doesn't save you, just lets me know so that I can pray for you. Anyone at all before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. The tension is only getting tighter. But I pray that you can find some talking points, some scriptural background for these major discussions that are happening all around the world. And I pray that you can look past what is happening now and know that you have eternal life. Take that comfort, that joy, and share it with others. Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray for all those who couldn't be here tonight, traveling, and those who have travels coming up. We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, we pray these things.